Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are going pre-history today, very, very, very far back in time. We have with us Leslie McFadden, who is a senior lecturer in archaeology at Birkbeck College and University of London, as well as an archaeologist. Uh, she's also a published author. She has published books like Archaeology and Photography, Time, Objectivity and Archive. Leslie has worked alongside the Cambridge Archaeological Unit excavating prehistoric landscapes in East Anglia. Welcome, Leslie. Hi, and it's amazing to see you. Hello, Alina. <laughs> I love this. This is just awesome. Reconnecting with former lecturers is just like <laughs> the best thing because the last time we saw each other was when I graduated my master's, which is about a year and a half ago. So we're going to talk to you about prehistory today because Leslie is a prehistorian. And I want to know more about this because, for example, when you're a historian for example, in the 20th century, I can go out and I find ev evidence everywhere. Anything I need is literally easy to interpret or more or less easier to interpret. Then something, for example, prehistory. So what is it like to be a prehistorian? Okay, so um, I suppose the first thing I'd say is that I'm, I'm, I'm quite late when it comes to prehistory. I'm probably what would be termed a later prehistorian because I work from things from about 12,000 years ago to about 4,000 years ago. So there's about 8,000 years of uh, time there from hunter-gatherers through to farmers and farming. But the main thing about being a prehistorian is about understanding humanity, under understanding people, groups of people, completely through the material worlds that they create and occupy. So there's no, uh, no texts, um, very little, very little imagery. It's about what people do with things and about understanding how they live and um, make their worlds, uh, the built world materially. It's, it's, it, I find that absolutely incredible that you, you work with such little material and you can create such a wide, beautiful story. I think I think the other way you can turn it around is um, all all evidence is fragmentary. Um, like you know that yourself from searching through archives. They're never total archives, are they? They're always fragments and bits. And you just have to concentrate very hard on the nature of what that evidence is. I mean, you've got to have a favourite site that you've worked on. Um. Well, oh, that's a difficult one. I'd say I'd say all the site, 
No, that's not true. I'd say all the prehistoric sites of Wiptone <laughs> that actually have evidence at them are interesting. Um, but I would uh, probably the first ever excavation I worked on is the one that I keep coming back to in my thinking and in my writing and my experience of it because I found it so so shocking in terms of what it actually entailed and it was a it was a neolithic long barrow um, a chambered monument uh, in Normandy in France called Colombier sur Seuls and it what I found so exciting was it was I always thought monuments and monumentality, if you like, the study of it was all about these clear, planned, designed structures, uh, tombs. They're, they're often called tombs. So the idea that they're, they're made in a specific way and they have a specific purpose. But what you realise in the excavation of them is that there are a series of projects. They're more like a series of construction sites and they involve failures and changes and uh, reuse and remakings. Quite often they involve a lot of the everyday incorporated into them. And the building of them, the project, the project of how people come, come together to build them is more important than any kind of structure or building or outcome, if you like. I realised that really, really early on in my career, but I realised that was the thing that archaeologists weren't writing about. It's, fr it's, from, the, it's from the early Neolithic, so you're, you're talking much more 4,000 BC, so you're talking about 6,000 years ago. They're earlier in France than they are in Britain. Um, but the the fact that they're never one thing, they're, they're never a, a building, they're always a series of uh, practices and building projects. And um, there are people um, incorporated into them, but, but often that's not the main feature of them. But because of the legacy from the antiquarian period of them being tombs, people expect them to be uh, a building for the dead. So what was the most yeah. interesting find on the site? So uh, this is a really boring answer. For me, the really, really interesting things were the much more messy, complicated um, building materials and building techniques that go into them uh, that are not to do with finished walls and facades. Um, but I do remember being 18, 17, 18 years old, that when you see a burial of a human, that it, I would be lying if I said that that's not incredibly evocative and transforming. Um, so in the quarry ditches um, where they excavated to take material out to build the monument, uh, there was a a young woman uh, who had died and she had been pregnant and there was I'm sure I've got this right there's never been a finished report but there was a perforation um, in her pelvis to remove the child for it to be buried with her and she was crouched with the child in in the quarry pit and that's interesting isn't it because that shows you that the the process of quarrying and the quarrying areas for material as 
are as much architectural as the so-called upcast mound. Um, that she's seen to be buried outside of the monument rather than than within it. That's the way. That's because of the way we think about architecture. We we think of um, architecture as a building defined by its walls, and then there are things outside of it or inside of it. Whereas in the Neolithic, if you think of architecture more as a process, and the idea of quarrying in to reveal materials to um, spur on more projects. Perhaps that was one of the most important locales of that site, and that's where she's buried. But in how we then write accounts of it, she's seen as being out with the monument. So uh, it wasn't, I remember it wasn't spectacular like you often get within uh, hunter-gatherer burials where, like, for example, for the Mesolithic, the period preceding the Neolithic in Scandinavia, you often, where there's been women with children and with uh, with neonates, it's been, they've had swan wings and lots of um, animal teeth beads around them. There was nothing like that, but it was much more the fact that there had been this procedure on her body. Um, I don't know whether it had they had been trying to take, you know, to to save her and to save the child and it had gone wrong or whether it was back part of the burial practice itself to uh, bring the child out before there was the burial. But it's really interesting. And the fact that that, that start or start and end of that child's life and, and that um, natality, if you like, was also at the the point in the architecture where it's the the start of bringing out material to put into an architecture to give it momentum um for for me the two were connected but um that was maybe seen to be too much of a kind of symbolic archaeology i don't know (laughs) so do you any other evidence from the neolithic era that women were buried like that with with their child for example well, you, you do you do get um, you so a big thing within prehistory is that um, you mark if you if you think of architecture more as a cyclical thing, it having a beginning, a middle, and an end, or a a start up, a full use, and then a closure, you will get. Um, young animals or young parts of people in the beginning process and then older parts of um, animals and people in later later processes. Uh, Joanna Brooke for the Bronze Age has written about life cycle of houses and life cycles of people. Um, uh, the idea of founding deposits and closing deposits um, at causewayed enclosures from the Neolithic, you uh, quite often get young parts of human and young parts of animal incorporated together in uh, burial assemblages. Um, so um, that kind of the biography of where a person is in their life in terms of youth or um, elderliness, if that's a word, and the point within the the cycle of the architecture itself is something that tends to be marked. So you can tell quite a lot from those bones and those stones in prehistory. 
just as much as you can, I'm sure, from uh, textual accounts within his historical archives, as long as you ask the right kinds of questions. <laughs> I mean, I love it, like going far back to Neolithic or Mesolithic, and you're looking at a burial, and so much can be told just by looking at the bones or the position, or if it was a cremation or... I mean, there's another question. Were there cremations? Have you found any cremations from that time period or time periods? So you, you do you do um you do get cremations. They're much more in the late Neolithic and in the early Bronze Age. Um the, uh, but to be honest, in my work, um I've tended to move away from the focus on human remains themselves. Not because I'm not interested in people and other kinds of agency, but because you already get that from other forms of evidence that get overlooked, like the worked stone and the pottery and the animal bone and deposition practices, if you like. So a classic example of this is I went on to do my PhD on long barrows, on the questioning, on a questioning of monumentality being much more about a practice rather than on a, a form of building. And I deliberately chose all of the areas away from where people are deposited because all of the attention had been on that. They had been seen to be tombs rather than construction sites. And so I wanted to look at all of the evidence that was always just within the boxes or the kind of background account. Um, so I was much more interested in the building materials and the building techniques and the process of building rather than the deposition of humans. So let's talk a bit about that then. Um, the everyday practices, pretty much. Yeah, so um, so in, in, in looking more at building practices and the kinds of materials that are involved in them, it means you, you start to think of these sites as projects. And if you think about it, uh, if you think of the caricature of monumentality, you always think of the megalithic, which means big stones. It almost means designs. And that conjures up ideas of it being men that are doing it and of it being a, an architect that's behind it. Now, if you start to deconstruct that and you think more about practices rather than designs and them changing, and then you start to notice that there are a lot of other materials involved, like small pieces of stone. There's more, there's more rubble and there's more, um, there's more, there's more rubble and there's more backfill than there is stone walling, if you like, within a monument. And then you also start to notice that there are things like middens, rubbish heaps, and there are hearths. And there are bits of um, decaying timber structure, which are much more to do with the everyday. And then you notice that those rubbish heaps have got scraps of pottery, bits of worked um, flint and stone in them, uh, bits of animal bone from eating. They've got a large amount of occupation evidence incorporated into them. And that's when you realise that everybody was at these construction sites, children, women and men. 
along with their animals and that they weren't these um, out of the way places to make a specific kind of building and it be specific people that were doing it. Everyone was doing it and they were probably involved in construction as they were moving into that part of the landscape at a particular time of the year and they would come together and build. It makes it changes how you think about who does building and it mm. changes how you think about what what a building project who that there's no there's not it's not that it's um haphazard but there has there doesn't need to be an overriding architect there doesn't have to be a pre-planned design and the evidence shows you that that's what i really love about prehistory the evidence shows you that and shows you that the way in which we want to write about buildings and architecture is about design and architects it is it isn't the right kind of questioning for this evidence and so that's what makes prehistory really cool i find it really that's interesting what, that's what makes architectural historians interested in prehistory too it's another way of understanding the built environment and the built world you find um modern day conceptions i mean i'm already thinking well wasn't it just the men that did all the building and you've just completely blown that out of the water saying well everybody was there so there's that whole modern notion which we tend to do i mean i i do it we all do it we do it in in ancient history we do it in the medieval we do it even in the 20th century that you know there's a specific role well what if there wasn't a specific role like you said yeah so, so, for example, if you take um, if you take uh, the the long barrows um, around um, north north northern Wiltshire or the the Avebury, the let's take the Avebury region. Mm. Um, we always think of Avebury, the big megalith- megalithic stones within the Henge from the late Neolithic. But and we always think of the long barrows from the earlier Neolithic. We always think of West Kennet first, West Kennet Long Barrow with its large um, megalithic chambers. Um, not much of the barrow itself. Um, has been excavated at West Kennet. Um, Alex Gibson has done, well, uh, Piggott did a, a trench, Stuart Piggott did a trench through it, and Alex Gibson has, has looked at um, that archive too. But what you can see is there are at least two long barrows there. There are at least two phases of construction. So it was never one thing anyway. And most of that site, most of the... Um, meters of that site are made of chalk rubble and dumped material and are that are woven together and by people coming together and wanting to build together that that can be done by anyone so as soon as as soon as you realize what constitutes most of this site it's not the megalithic how how what kind of technology do you need for that material to come together well it's actually just people wanting to be involved together in moving baskets of material, you realise that everyone can do it. But we always concentrate on the big stones and how much, um, and it's been done, how many man hours would it take to um, erect them, excuse the puns. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just the whole thing, you know, people look at Stonehenge and they're like, oh, you know, obviously it was, men who did it i mean i think we, we need to do we need to do a podcast on stonehenge because that is a really really interesting site 
um, might have to drag it down. I think Tim, Tim is a, uh, does Stonehenge, doesn't he? Am I completely off the ball with that? He's, he's, I think Tim would probably be more interested in Avebury. But, um, but what, what's exciting about the recent work that's been done at Avebury and the recent work that's been done at Stonehenge is they're, they're showing that it's a series of different kinds of projects. Both, mm. both sites are a series of different kinds of projects, um, some of which stop and have failed, other which is a, other, others which are reworkings on previous bits of material. Um, for example, we now know that the dead were incorporated, uh, cremated dead were incorporated very in, very early into the matrix of Stonehenge. Uh, it, it changes how we think about these sites all the time through the process of excavation. I love it. I think it's just it's just so interesting. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I think we should um I think we should bring up the topic of uh the Burtbeck Field School at Must Farm because your um your other half actually he does the, the main excavations there, doesn't he? Uh we've got a chance to work with him. But you um I think it's you and Tim run the run the field school at Burtbeck. It was very, it's, it's very much something that I set up and that I run. And the re, the re, that was my job. That's what I got employed at Birkbeck to do, was to set up a field school um, for the department. And what I chose to do was to, be, before, before I went to do a PhD, I worked for the Cambridge Archaeological Unit. And what really impressed me about the Cambridge Archaeological Unit was that it would excavate prehistoric landscapes at scale. And it was able to do that because it worked on quarries, um, either through gravel extraction or through clay extraction. And they'd come back over and over again and dig hectares of landscape and, and, and encounter prehistoric evidence. And I thought it'd be really cool for students to see that and mm. to get work experience working with the Cambridge Archaeological Unit. Um, but one of the frustrations in working with the Cambridge Archaeological Unit was you always, because you were working f- for um, working because of development, you would be trying to characterise sites very, very quickly and you'd be trying to go for the the key focal areas of a site. So defining settlement, defining monuments, finding the concentrations. And so the background textures kind of fall away there. And what's really exciting about Must Farm 
Mark does the 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 Bronze Age, which is all about um, the causeways and the palisades and the the, the the stilted houses and 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 the the river and the boats. But what's really exciting about that landscape is there's a preserved ancient land surface there from the Mesolithic through to the early Bronze Age that was a dry woodland landscape before Fenland was created. And it means that 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 preserved ancient woodland landscape is there for hectares. Now, now a, a unit like the Cambridge Archaeological Unit will look for the traces of the houses and the monuments and the concentrations. But what we did at the field school, I don't know if you remember, we dug one by one meter test pits in blocks in a yeah. checkerboard over and over again. And we've been doing that now for eight years. And what we were trying to do was get at the density of artifacts within those test pits. And it was exciting when we found things. Like I remember when you were there, when an early Bronze Age uh, thumbnail scraper was found. And yeah. that's exciting, isn't it? But but what's exciting about test pitting an ancient land surface is if and if you do over and over again at scale, is you get at the the movement through that landscape and the texture of the density of that occupation. And that's something that a developer paid archaeology doesn't get to do, but we could do. Um, at Birkbeck. And, and let me give you a context to that. So um, do you remember that there had been a monument when you were there that had had a young woman buried with a Peterborough Ware pot yes. um, the Cambridge Archaeological Unit had excavated? Yes, yes. Um, so they targeted a monument and then they moved on. And we never knew whether, we knew it was in a woodland, um, but we never knew if she was buried away from settlement or whether she was buried within a busy part of the landscape that people routinely moved through. And when we did our test pits, we found a density of artefacts from that town scattered in the contour around that monument. And we also found a fence line, the traces of a fence line around that monument. And what that does when I say adds texture, it told us that um, there were so many animals, probably um, cattle. um, So, you know, they're pastoralists moving through this landscape that they have to fence off and manage this landscape. And they're also they're, they're making stone tools they're um, hunting, they're preparing and cooking food, they're um, setting hearths in small small groups, they're burying their rubbish. This was a busy landscape that she was buried in. They weren't there permanently all the time because we know that the rubbish gets backfilled and then there's no repeated cuts within that area. They move on. But it tells you as people move through that landscape, it shows you how people move through that landscape and it tells you that when they're at that place, they stop and do things. 
And so she's not there alone on an isolated mon in an isolated monument anymore. It's not it's not a, a stripped down ruin, if you like. We we add the the everyday and the busyness of the the living around her. It's really cool to excavate ancient land surfaces. I tell you, the, when we I remember that that excavation, we found so many animal bones and lots of worked flint, and it's just these animal animal bones just kept coming and coming, and I was like, oh, another another bone, another bone. It was it was just just insane how much stuff we were finding across the board. What's really exciting about that is when you were there, Alina, we started to find the early Bronze Age. And so, so that's much more about 2000 BC. This is 500 years later than um, the monument we were just talking about. And um, we were like, oh, that's interesting that there's some early Bronze Age evidence here. And what we've found over the years is we've started to find um, higher up on the contour of the terrace that was overlooking a river. We've started to find a concentration of early Bronze Age settlement. And it's full of beaker pottery um, and uh, that that um, thumbnail scraper that you were there in the finding of. We found lots and lots of them, and we found lots of awls and lots of scrape and lots of other scrapers. So that tells us that not only are they um, making flint tools, they're using them for leather working. They're starting to get quite particular about how they use that terrace overlooking the river, and. Settlement evidence for the early Bronze Age is fairly rare. Everybody, con- again, everybody concentrates on the the round barrows on the monuments that uh, we were able to show the kind of densities and concentrations and the scale of how people come together on that terrace um, in doing leather working, uh, in eating and in cooking, and we also found some smelting evidence as well. So it's grown through doing those little one-by-one one test pits, just doing lots of them. I need, I need to tell you one thing. I did not enjoy the peat. <laughs> it's quite it smelly, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I think that was probably one of the most tragic and worst experiences of, as a vegan archaeologist in my life ever and what so this this is where this is where i get excited remember you said that you get excited by um uh, written sources in archives mm. this is where i tell you i really get excited about the material what what's really exciting about that peat is that peat comes in at the end of the early bronze age and that tells you that the dry the dry woodland that I talked about from the Mesolithic to the early Bronze Age disappears. It starts to disappear. First of all, it fills up the lower terrace and then the middle terrace where you were digging the early, early Bronze Age. It, it, it sits on top of that as well, on top of their um, or over their pits and over their middens, it saturates it. That stagnant water saturates it and um, starts to take over. And that peat is the start of the making of Fenland, which is really, really exciting. I know it stank, but it's the, 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 it's the <laughs> sign of the, the, the start of the making of Fenland. But it's also, it's also the start of having to live in a completely different way. And if you remember, you were digging peat out of a ditch. Mm. And that ditch, is, that ditch is cut in the Middle Bronze Age at 1500 BC. 
So 500 years after the early Bronze Age story I've just told. But they're doing it to demarcate the landscape, not for drainage, because it fills up with the peat straight away, but they're doing it to say, we can't control the saturation of this landscape anymore. Um, what, had, what had been a, a middle and a lower terrace down to a river is now, is now marsh. And we can use the edges of that marsh um, to do things on. And in the Middle Bronze Age, when it dries out, we can use it for pasture, um, but it's brackish. But it tells us that we now need to partition and think about the upper areas of land that we have left. And we have to come to some kind of negotiation about how we're going to use that. So if you think of climate change now, climate change now and how aware of it we are within our own life histories and biographies, that peat in that ditch for those Middle Bronze Age people, they're acutely aware of a disappearing world and what they have to do to change how they're going to live in it. That's incredible. That's from some peat and a ditch. How much you can tell from a peat and a ditch. (laughs) I absolutely love it. So I would recommend anybody who wants to study archaeology, do head over to Birkbeck. We had such a blast. That was such an awesome week, except for obviously the tooth and my hand surgery and everything else. But otherwise, it was a right blast. And we had a proper good, 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 good laugh about it. So if you're interested in study archaeology, head to Birkbeck because Leslie is an awesome lecturer. And then you've got Tim and everyone, but Leslie is awesome. So let's move on just quickly. What tell us quickly what you've been working on recently? Because I know you've got you've got a book in the works that we will get you back on to talk about that because that's actually something that I'd love to hear more about. But apart from that, what else have you been working on? So um just to continue with the train spotter theme, more ancient land surfaces. So these preserved land surfaces from the Mesolithic and Neolithic. Are incredibly are incredibly important, and they're incredibly important because how they tell you how the tempo and the way in which people move through the landscape and what they do in their everyday. And so, um, with colleagues uh, who work on Jersey, and I think you've got Matt Pope tomorrow talking about Neanderthals. Yes. Um, so uh, with um, Matt Pope and um, Becky Scott, um, who very much work on, and Andy Shaw, who very much work on the Paleolithic, and Martin Bates, and then you've got Chantal Canella that works on Jersey on the Mesolithic. There is now me working on the Neolithic with that team. And what we're doing is trying to understand how the Channel Islands the dynamics of them between France and Britain through all of prehistory. So from the Paleolithic right through to the Neolithic. And how I got involved was there was a quarry. Does this sound familiar? Um, (laughs) There wasn't a must farm quarry for clay. It's a sands quarry, the Simon Sands quarry. And from the cutting of the quarry, they could see that there was an ancient land surface exposed and so what, with Birkbeck students, actually, what we've done is we've gone in and test pitted those one by one meter test pits all around the edges of the quarry to get at the density and distribution of artifacts. 
but on that on that site we realized we had a, a concentration in a very specific area of early neolithic objects and artifacts and when we cleared back we realized what we had evidence for is an early neolithic house oh wow and basically the the flank it exposed the flanking ditch of an early Neolithic house and its associated midden, which is quite rare. Um, and it's the first to be found on the island. Um, normally, the evidence for the early Neolithic is middens and pits. So it's the first on Jersey to be found. But what's really exciting there as well is, um, is that idea of movement and uh, how you understand kinds of people through movement with things so um there are lots of there's lots of imported pottery from uh, normandy in france it connected me to that excavation i did when i was very young um at columbia sur Seul. there's lots of um, early neolithic pottery from uh, normandy but also crucially there were lots of um flint blades from a type of flint called songly that also come from Normandy mines. And so you could have thought that it, perhaps it was farmers coming over from France to the Channel Islands with their stuff to move into a new area. But the other thing you realise from the coarse stone tools is that there's a knowledge of the whole of the island. There, there's a, a knowledge there of where to get quartz and diorite from, from all over the island to make quern stones for grinding um, cereals um, for, for flour, which is really interesting. And so there are, there are also a lot of pebble tools, um, smooth pebble tools like pounders and pestles that very much are a hunter-gatherer way of, they're very much a hunter-gatherer object and a hunter-gatherer way of um, using materials to do certain things. So there's actually a much more complicated mix between a hunter-gatherer technology and knowledge of that landscape that's more deeply situated along with imports and so there's probably in the same way as there was in the middle mesolithic probably a lot of toing and froing between the channel islands and france and it's not just about farmers coming over and settling but you can tell that from types of object and how types of object are used and how and, and the kinds of situated knowledge that are needed of certain materials to make certain kinds of objects, um, which is really cool. So bizarrely, I went to dig an ancient land surface at scale to find more of the everyday, but I've actually found and concentrated on a house and a structure, which becomes, although everyday, pretty monumental in its significance. I love it. I think it's great. I love the work that you do. And again, as I've mentioned before, if you're interested in studying archaeology, head over to Birkbeck. But listen, Leslie, this was absolutely just amazing learning more about Neolithic and Mesolithic. I didn't do enough of it at university. I decided to go towards the 20th century. So you have even educated me in this. And it's been absolutely fantastic talking about must farm and the everyday practices and landscape and the smelly peat 
and yeah, the interesting monuments and burials and everything else we need to get you back we need to get mark on to talk about must farm because that is such an amazing site in itself and yeah come back whenever you like will do i think one last thing i'd like to say is um what's really important is the fact that um students can do history and archaeology at birkbeck it's a history and archaeology program that's the most popular and the fact that you you are still doing your prehistory because you do look at the material nature of your archives and what you do now so the, the influence of that prehistory continues in how you practice as a historian. And maybe that's what's important. It is very much so. So head over to Birkbeck, ladies and gentlemen. Definitely head over to Birkbeck. <laughs> Do it. I highly recommend it. Amazing. Thank you so much, Leslie. You're very welcome, Alina. Take care. Join us tomorrow because Colin Fisher is back. He was absolutely fantastic and passionate and lovely on his history of uh, Madrid in the Civil War. Now he's back to talk all about another of his passions, which is literature. And he's going to talk to us all about Cervantes and Don Quixote. So don't miss that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.